Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kalt and sharp at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and Jewish history soundbites, and this episode is part six in our ongoing series, The Great Shanghai Escape, describing the uh, attempt, a successful attempt at thousands of refugees escaping from uh, Poland to Lithuania and then getting visas and being, traversing the Soviet Union, getting to Japan, with many of them ending up in Shanghai. Um, and you can check out all our previous five installments of this series on Jewish History Soundbites, as well as the entire archive of over 400 episodes on Jewish History Soundbites, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, tell your friends and family about it. That's the best way to help this, the, the podcast. Um, and you can also leave a rating or write a review, and that would be uh, amazing. Thank you so much. Um, so we're, we, last two episodes, I think, were the climax of the series. Um, we got the visas. We got the Curacao so-called visas um, through the Dutch consuls, uh, De Decker and Riga, and the honorary consul Jan Zwartendijk in Kovna. We got the Japanese transit visas from Chiuni Sugihara in Kovna, and we had got the Mir involved last um, last uh, episode among all the other thousands of refugees. And today we'll explore how um, the different groups of refugees, the subdivisions, and how it worked. And also, I want to get into the next step. The crucial next step is getting the Soviet exit visas. Now that we have N visas and transit visas, now we need to do the most dangerous part of the entire operation, and that is to request from the Soviet Union themselves exit visas to do the great sin of leaving the Soviet communist paradise 
and uh, it was a big risk involved. They might be sent to Siberia. But before I get into that whole story, I want to do uh, just mention some feedback and clarifications from the last couple of episodes. The, I got a, a ton of feedback. It seems that it's very popular. The two main primary feedbacks I got uh, are recently are how come we're not focusing at all on the Chabad story? There's so much to talk about Chabad. There was the time Chetmimim contingent here. And, um, and of course, when we get to Shanghai, the rabbi of Shanghai is Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi. There's a lot of Chabad stories. And don't worry about it. I will get to it, hopefully today already. And in soon, you know, in the, in the coming episodes as well. So for all those there who are concerned that I've been neglecting the Chabad story, don't worry, we'll get to it. That's one clarification. There seems to be another, in that context, by the way, I'm sorry, before I go on, I mentioned last episode that Rav Shleim Volba was assisting the refugees in obtaining visas in Stockholm from the Dutch and Japanese consulates in Stockholm and Sweden. He actually was working closely with Rav Shleim Yaakov Zuber, who I mentioned quite some time ago in, a, in, a, in an episode about Swedish Jewry, um, who was a, um, a Chabad Chassid as well. And the two of them worked together in all of the rescue activities throughout the war and in this visa operation as well. I should have mentioned him uh, when I mentioned the Revolba. Okay, the next um, feedback, um, and I want to make a clarification here that I got, was regarding the idea that I'm developing throughout this series, and I'm trying to emphasize as much as I can, that they were escaping and attempting to run away from the Soviets, not the Nazis. And that's evidently clear because they were not under the Nazis. They were under the Soviets. It was Soviet occupation and they were escaping from the Soviets. The Nazis were not in Lithuania. They were not in eastern Poland. They were in western and central Poland and, of course, in the rest of Europe and western Europe. And um, the Polish Jewish refugees who were escaping at this point were trying to get away from the Soviets, the communists. That's, that was the idea. And that is a theme that I develop and emphasize throughout the series. And to me, it's a central point and very important. And the number one misunderstood um, element of this whole story is that they were escaping from the Soviets. Now, a lot of people have an issue with it for some reason, and they really don't like it that I'm emphasizing it, and I've gotten a ton of feedback about how really they were running from the Nazis. And 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 the, the um, claims range from the fact that maybe they suspected the Nazis would invade one day, um, and, and, they, and they also wanted to get further away from the Nazis because the Nazis were close by, so they wanted to run far away from the Nazis. Or some of them, like the Taimchitmimim contingent, by the way, and many others as well, they had come not from Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland, but they had come from Nazi-occupied Central and Western Poland. So they were actually running away from the Nazis, and then they ended up by the Soviets. And some of them, a few listeners pointed out, had even been German Jewish refugees. In other words, they were running all the way from Germany through Poland all the way to Lithuania. So these were really people who had suffered under the Nazis and were running away from them. They were escaping from them. So how could I say that they were escaping from the Soviets? They were really escaping from the Nazis. I just want to make one small clarification. No one's arguing that it was well known that the Nazis did not like Jews and that they did terrible things to them. 
No one is debating that point. That was well known to everyone in the world at this point. In 1939, 1940, everyone knew that, that the Nazis were very bad, awful people, terrible anti-Semites who hated Jews and did very, very mean and not nice things to them. That is an understatement, and everyone knew that. It's, it was well known, it was not a secret. Um, the idea was that my criteria is very simple. If they were under Nazi occupation, they were escaping Nazis. If they were under Soviet occupation, they were escaping Soviets. That's the only criteria I have. Now, that's even more true in a reality where it's pre the final solution, where if it's that the Nazis, all they are is terrible anti-Semites who do terrible things to Jews. But it's before the final solution. They don't exterminate them in a systematic way in, in either pits or gas chambers, shooting them into pits or gas chambers. It's pre-final solution. So not only is it not under so uh, excuse me, not only is it not under Nazi occupation, it's under Soviet occupation, but it's not. It's even pre-final solution. So to me, it seems like a very clear-cut story. They're not running away from the Nazis. They're running away from the Soviets. Is it possible that they had come from an area that was under Nazi occupation in central Poland? Is it possible that they came from Germany itself originally? Very nice. Um, you know, if if they had made it to Switzerland and then they decided to move to New York, would I say that they're running away from the Nazis? I mean, how far do we take this? If they made it to England and now they want to move to New York... Are we going to say that they're still running away from the Nazis? I read a testimony once about a Yemenite Jew who recalled that his father, when the when Rommel's uh, Field Marshal Irvin Rommel's tanks had made it into Egypt, and were threatening this, were like a you know a hundred miles or a couple hundred miles from the Suez Canal. So his, it's not that far from Yemen. So he, this this testimony that I saw from a Yemenite Jew. He said, he said, remembers his father preparing a hideout for when the Nazis reach Yemen and they're going to kill the Jews in Yemen. Now, obviously, the Nazis never reached Yemen. But are we going to say that the, Yemen, the Yemenite Jews were also running away from the Nazis? I, I, I'm just like, I don't know how far to take it. So it, to me, there's a simple red line. If you're not under Nazi occupation, you're not escaping the Nazis, you're escaping the Soviets. I think the point is clear and we can move on. So I want to take pick it up from where we left off last time. And um, we spoke about last time how the Mir Yeshiva was essentially bucking the trend. The Rebbe Malin had, you know, almost defiantly said, this is what we have to do. We have to get these visas. We have to um, um, take the advice of, of Zara Chavarhaftig and take these visas with all the risks involved because we have to get away from the communists, get away from the Soviets who are not going to allow us to live our religious life in our yeshivas, which was against the accepted position of the rabbinical establishment of Reb Chaim and all the other Rashi Yeshiva, Reb Chana Vassarman, Reb Aaron Cutler, and to a certain extent even Reb Lezidol Finkel himself, he wasn't as against it. And the official position was Sheva al So there's two points I want to make. Um, first of all, um, Zarach Varavtig in, in, in the book actually describes a conversation that he had with Reb Chaim about it. And Reb Chaim gave him his reasons um, why, why he, fe he feels that they should not, uh, at this point, um, 
latch on to this dubious visa scheme, which might end them up in end them up in Siberia. So he says, number one, there is no need to panic. In this war, every place was dangerous and Lithuania might remain calm. Number two, this was, by the way, this conversation between Varovtig and Reb Chaim Eiser took place before the Soviet occupation. This is when Lithuania was still neutral. Um, number two, it was hardly right to remove the yeshivas from the vicinity of Poland as the war might soon end and then, and how then could Jewish life in Poland be rehabilitated without the voice of Tyra? Number three, as only a few certificates to Palestine were available, Aliyah would split the yeshivas and endanger their continued existence. So from number three, it's clear that at this point, the Curacao visas were not even considered. They were talking about just moving the yeshivas to Eretz Yisrael. Number four, the small Jewish community in Eretz Yisrael could hardly support the burden of further yeshivas in addition to the local institutions already existing there. As a result, the yeshiva students might very well leave the yeshivas in search of a livelihood. Number five, if at all, it was preferable, preferable for the yeshivas to move to the United States. Number six, the U.S. offices of the Polish yeshivas would refuse to pledge their income as this would undermine their ability to raise funds for the maintenance of the yeshivas. Now, this is clear that all these reasons are really relevant before the Soviet occupation. Once the Soviet occupation um, uh, uh, took place, so the primary reason that they uh, that, that they were opposed was because if you're going to ask the Soviets for exit visas, you're going to be sent to Siberia. And in the pre-final solution world, the worst thing possible was to be sent to Siberia. That nothing, nothing could be more imaginably uh, horrifying than that. So, so then that, that becomes the reason of Sheva Altais, of not to pursue the visas. Now, an interesting uh, note is that I remember a conversation I had with one of my rabbis in the mirror, Rafal Shmuel Levitz, who actually, as a child, grew up in Shanghai. Um, he, his father, Chaim Shmuel Levitz, of course, was the Rashiva. He remembered very little from Shanghai. Whenever I would ask him about it, he would tell me that he was four years old when he arrived there, and he was ten years old, nine or ten years old uh, when he left, so he barely had any memories. He used to tell me to ask his older sisters, Rebetzin Partsovich and Rebetzin Ezrahi, both of blessed memory, and um, and they they would know more. I did have the opportunity to speak to both of them. Um, but he did tell me a story, not from his memory, but from his father and from other Altamirs that he was acquainted with. He told me that um, that in Shanghai, when the final solution, news of the final solution reached Shanghai and and the Shiva students of the Mir uh, heard that their families, their friends, uh, their, all the other Yeshiva students, anyone else who was behind, who was left back in Eastern Europe, had gotten, were, were presumably killed by the Nazis, were murdered by the Nazis in, in, in the final solution. So, you know, after they got over the period of mourning and the shock and the horror of, of this decimation of, of, of Polish Jewry and of, of, of Eastern European Jewry, so many of them started to say, well, I guess it's good we took those visas. I guess it's good that Rebbe Malin held us together and we pursued the visas even though they were dubious and even though they were risky and even though we were just running away from the Soviets. But it turned out that it was all for the best, that it saved our lives and it's sure good we didn't you know, listen to the prevailing, uh, um, you know, uh, what was said um, from the rabbinical establishment, um, because look, we survived and anyone who stayed uh, um, it was killed by the Nazis. That was what was starting to be said in the yeshiva. And when the mashgiach, 
of the Mir and Shanghai, Reb Levenstein, heard that this was being said. This is what Rafal Shmulevitz told me. He, he, um, Rabbi Chatzko Levenstein, by the way, had received a visa to Palestine to get to Eretz Yisrael. And he forego, he, he turned down, he didn't use that visa, and instead went with the yeshiva to Shanghai because he felt that they needed the spiritual leadership and it was wrong to abandon them. So he, he you know, he, with great mysterious nefesh, he took those visas to go with them instead of taking a more safe route of getting back to Palestine, where he had lived, by the way, previously, before 1936, when he came back, a whole different story. Either way, so Reb got up in the base medrash in Shanghai, Reb Levenstein, and he said that, that um, this is how Reb told it to me, if I, my memory serves me correctly, that just because um, it turns out that we're alive and we survived, um, and this doesn't in any way say that it was it was the right thing not to listen, and that it was it doesn't prove anything, because you know we uh, just because it you know it turns out that it all worked out for the best, it doesn't justify the means. The ends don't justify the means. And uh, look, we're alive, and we have to thank God that we're alive. And it turned out that it was a good thing that we did, but it doesn't mean retroactively that what we did was the right thing. So that's what Rafal told me. And I remember I was sitting at his table Friday night and I said to him, can you explain what that means? Because I do not understand that. I, I, I mean, how, how, how do we have any understanding what Rabchatzka Levenstein is trying to say? And Rafal told me, no, I don't, I don't have any way to explain it to you. He said, I'm just repeating his story. I, I don't know what it means either. I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't help you. I can't explain it to you either. So I was very, you know, felt very validated with that because um, Reb Fol didn't understand this. I don't have to understand it either. But the, the reality is, is that Reb Chatzkel himself took the visa and the Mir took the visas and they were pretty happy about it afterwards that, that it, went, went, it went that way. Um, so that's the, that's the, uh, that's the uh, that's that story. So now they have to get Soviet exit visas. That's the next step. Um, and we're talking about thousands of refugees. We're not talking about the Mir now specifically. Um, they need to apply for Soviet exit visas, and that becomes the scariest part of the process because now is the risky. Now is the risk. Now they think um, that if they apply. For these visas, they're going to get sent to Siberia. Now, let me explain to you what the risk was and why this was a legitimate fear. First of all, because unlike any other step, each applicant had to appear for a personal interview in the NKVD offices. They had to each be alone with the NKVD officers and have a, they, you were called to a meeting. Nathan Gutvier described in his testimony that his meeting was at 3 in the morning. You, you got told when to show up there, and you came, whether you liked it or not, and it worked, uh, you know, whatever hours it was, and it was a scary place to go to. You never knew that you might get arrested inside and never see the light of day again. Who knows what? It was a scary place to go, and you went alone. And, and, and you had, on your application, you had to give all your details, your name, your address, where you're from, what your citizenship is, what your plans are. Literally, they have every detail on you, what your profession is, 
your religion, your everything, and now they have your whole file, and now they can have anything they want on you. They can accuse you of being counter-revolutionary. They can accuse you of espionage, of having contacts with people in the West, of holding foreign currency, of God knows whatever these communists can come up with as a crime against you. And it's pretty scary. Not only that... But their fears were vindicated by the fact that in eastern Poland from September 1939 and in Lithuania, just in the short couple of months that already there had been a Soviet occupation, they actually had sent many to Siberia. They actually had arrested many, many, many people, Jews, non-Jews, intellectuals, politicians, writers, uh, religious figures, all kinds of people, capitalists, right? People who owned businesses, stuff like that. Um, all these crimes imagined or perceived by the Soviets to be crimes and those people were erased. They were flushed down the memory hole and never heard from again. They were sent out to the gulag. So this was a very, very legitimate fear. And again, in the pre-final solution world, the worst thing possible is to be sent to Siberia. Many people didn't survive Siberia. And you suffered there and you didn't know when you were going to get out. So this was a very, very legitimate fear. So they start to apply for the visas um, and, and, and they're doing it with great trepidation because they see you have no choice. It's either stay and accept Soviet citizenship or just do it and hope for the best. And they start to apply for them. It, the, the process begins. Remember, they got their transit and, and end visas, the Curacao and Japanese visas, in August. So September, October, November, they start to apply. They go through the thousands of refugees, go through the process of applying for the Soviet exit visas. And they start to receive them in November, December, January, and over the course of the winter. And they actually receive them. The Mir, for instance, got them in Cheshvan, which is like November, around this time of year, um, 1940. Um, at this time also, it becomes apparent that the entire Mir Yeshiva is not staying together, and some of the Mir students do not get the visas. They either had left the Yeshiva at this point and gone back to their families, or they weren't eligible for the visas because they had gotten, they had received Soviet citizenship either either by choice or because of their, by virtue of where they had been born, or they were Lithuanian, or whatever it was. Um, and I spoke about this in a recent episode a few months ago, about the mirrors who didn't make it. But most of the Mir Yeshiva does obtain the visas. There are several thousand other refugees who do as well. Reblazi Finkel at this point, now that the Mir is going, is going to end up in safety. He sees that his yeshiva, his beloved yeshiva, is going to be safe. They received their transit visas. They received their end visas. They received even the Soviet exit visas. So now he himself decides to separate and go to Palestine to use his visa that he got through Rev Herzog, who got him one of the extra uh, above quota rabbinical visas, um, clergy visas. Um, Sir Blaise Udall, uh, separates from the Mir in December of 1940, and he heads towards Odessa, where he ends up making it to Eretz Yisrael. Now, who else got these Soviet exit visas? Like I said, they're regular refugees, families, parents with children, secular Jews, religious Jews, um, older, younger, um, literally from all types. So again, there's this certain idea that it was the mere yeshiva that escaped, or Taim Chetamimim that escaped, or Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin that escaped. It was 
it was refugees, uh, Polish Jewish refugees for the most part, but also from other countries who ended up there. And they're from all stripes of life, all across the spectrum. Presumably there were many non-Jews as well who tried to get out um, because they were trying to get away from the Soviets. Um, I imagine many Poles wanted to get away from the Soviets as well. So I'm sure there were all types of people in this group um, who, who, who were there. Um, a few prominent ones, who, who are in the context of our discussion of the yeshiva community, is this smaller contingent from the yeshiva's Chachme Lublin, the, uh, uh, from down, down in Lublin in Poland. They made it uh, a small contingent, about 30-something uh, students made it to Vilna, and they received these visas as well. And a group from Taimchet Tamimim of Chabad Lubavitch, who had been in the main flagship yeshiva with the Free of the Karebbe in Otvotsk, suburb of Warsaw. Um, two prominent Rebbes were there too, the Amshanov Rebbe, Reb Shimon Shalom Kalish, and the Mazitzer Rebbe, Reb Shol Yedid Yataub. Um, so there was, there was uh, two Rebbes as well. Uh, the the uh, the the it's interesting in the Chabad group. Um, so I was privileged to speak to um, a Chabad Shliach in upstate New York, or Benzin Chanovitz, who was very gracious and he took the time and patience to share with me the story of his father, who was one of the Taimchetimim, who uh, students who made it to Vilna and then got the visas to. Uh, Curacao and and and, uh, and Japan, and then made it to Shanghai and spent the war years in Shanghai with with the yeshiva, the Taimchetimim there. His father was Reb Gershon Chanovitz, very prominent Chabad rabbi later in life, and he described to me the process. and I really like the description because it 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 zooms in on one individual and how they went through the decision process and how. They spent their time in Vilna and how they got the visas and everything, and it really brings it out. Um, um, you know, we can uh, we can extrapolate from that about how the group in general did it. So he he shared with me that his father of Gershon Chanovitz, the Free the Karebbe, had sent them, set, encouraged the students to escape from Warsaw. Again, Warsaw's on the Nazi side, so they're coming from the Nazi occupation, escaping to Vilna, to. Um, neutral Lithuania, and then it becomes under Soviet occupation. So he, they go with the direction of the Friedrich Rebbe, who um, this group of, 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 of contingent from the yeshiva, not everyone from the yeshiva made it. Now, once he was there, he actually, his family wasn't far, and it was in a town in what's today Belarus, those days it was eastern Poland, which was not that far from Vilna, and he went to visit his family. And in the process, he rescued some of his siblings, because he encouraged his parents to allow his siblings to come with him, wherever the yeshiva would go, he would take them along, and he would get obtain visas for them as well. And he was able to uh, rescue a few of his, I think two or three of his siblings, one of whom, unfortunately, passed away from typhus while they were in Shanghai. And he said how the, so see, interesting how you have that, you know, going back to the family, but then coming to rejoin the yeshiva, which I always wondered about how many yeshiva students went to visit their families and were in contact with their families. And I would like to gather more um, evidence of, of this, what was described. He also described how the Lubavitcher Bachram had a relationship with Rebchaim Isaac Grzynski, um, who even provided them with funds prior to Pesach of 1940 to purchase new kalim for Pesach because the Lubavitch custom was to have new 
new dishes for Pesach, not to kosher dishes, but to have new dishes. And they were, they felt uncomfortable asking Rav Chaim Eizer for funds for that because this is wartime and people are desperate for food and everyone's so limited with their funds. And Rav Chaim Eizer himself offered it to them because he wanted them to be able to maintain their customs even in these desperate times. Um, so that's a, you know, a, a nice, beautiful uh, relationship that, the, that, that Rav Chaim Eizer, the great Lithuanian tzaddik had with the Hasidic Bacharim of Taim In fact, the Taim were the only, one of the only yeshivas that actually stayed in Vilna. Most of the other yeshivas, like I said, went spread around to the countryside. So when Reb Chaim Meiser passed away in August 1940, so it was actually Lubavitcher's students who did the Shmira on Reb Chaim Meiser until his Levaya. That's another interesting tidbit. And then ultimately, when they were getting these visas, so it was again under, uh, following the directive of the Friedrich Rebbe, that he advised them to go get the, get the visas, and specifically he said, you follow whatever the Amshinava Rebbe does. The Amshinava Rebbe of Shimon Shalom Kalish, who had also come from Advatsk, so the Friedrich Rebbe knew him personally, he said, wherever he goes, you go. So they're just following the Amshinava Rebbe, and the Amshinava Rebbe with his heavy uh, central Polish accent he said, Yach gay, I'm going. He didn't say Ich gay like they did in Lita. So he said, Yach gay, I'm going. And the Lubavitcher students went with him. And, uh, you know, everyone says, you know, uh, Amshinov is late. So they're known for being late. When push comes to shove, the Amshinov rebel was earlier than everyone else. He went and got the visas. He beat everyone to it. So when it comes to things that are important, the Amshinov knows how to be the earliest and the first with alacrity. Um, the Majitz Rebbe also was one of the first to leave. He got the visas. In fact, some people credit him with, with the success of the whole visa story. Interesting. Um, the Majitz Rebbe, who also lived in Atvatsk before the war, um, in the suburb of Warsaw. So Rapshal Yedid Yitaub, so he, um, he escaped to Vilna in the beginning of the war, and he got one of the early visas. And when he arrived he, in, in the United States, he was this big celebrity, this great Hasidic rabbi who had escaped from the Soviet-occupied Eastern Europe, and he had made it to the United States. So he was interviewed by by a an American media, um, you know, outfit uh, to about what was what is it like living under the Soviets in Eastern Europe. So he went ahead and he said, oh, it's wonderful. The Soviets allow us to practice our religion. They give us freedom. They let us leave when we apply to leave. Whatever we want, it's amazing. And people thought the Majid Tzarebbe had lost it. Like, what was he talking about? Everyone knows that the Soviets suppressed religion and they were atheists and communists and anti-religion and they destroyed yeshivas and they destroyed religious life. What is he doing? And they didn't realize how brilliant the Majid Tzarebbe was. The Majid Tzarebbe was was trying to help those who were still behind. And he knew that the Soviets would see what's going to be printed in the newspapers from his interview. Stalin had spies everywhere. They were going to read the newspapers. It wasn't that difficult. He didn't even need Stalin's spies to do it. And if they would see him saying, oh, the Soviets are terrible, they destroy religion, and there's no one worse than the Soviets, then that wouldn't encourage the Soviet Union to issue more exit visas. Because they would say, look, they're going to just badmouth us in the West. But here they see this great rabbi, this famous person interviewed by one of the big American newspapers. 
He's saying how wonderful we are. So, you know, it's good propaganda. It's good. These religious Jews are saying good things about us so we can issue more exit visas. So it's an interesting theory. It possibly is true. And maybe it's uh, the Majid Sareb's wise perceptive uh, you know, uh, foresight is what uh, uh, is one of the factors that led to the Soviets issuing more uh, exit visas. It's interesting, another side point related to the Majid Sareb is that shortly before the war broke out, when he was still in Otvatsk, and the, it was like days after the, the Molotov and Ribbentrop uh, 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 pact had already been signed and it seemed that war was inevitable and it was only a matter of days before the Nazis would invade Poland and his followers the Majestrebbe's followers were asking what should we do should we escape, should we run, where should we go what are we supposed to do and the Majestrebbe had no answer for them and he felt like you know he was betraying them as a leader, he doesn't know what to tell them, he's, he's at loss for advice, it's such a dark time and confusing time and he's pacing his apartment back and forth in his living room. And he starts, and Majitz, of course, is all about singing and song. And he starts to hum a niggin to himself. And he puts it to the words of Proik Yasanach, what we sing in, in Karibain on Friday night. Many, many homes on Friday night. And he starts to put this niggin to the words of Proik Yasanach, redeem your sheep. From the mouth of the lion, um, and take your your people out from the exile the nation that you have chosen and um, and his beautiful haunting gorgeous one of the nicest songs out there and that eventually becomes the theme song of the escape when he encourages his followers to leave and he himself makes it to Vilna and when he's in Vilna and all these Litvashi yeshiva students who have never experienced the warmth of a of uh, of a charismatic Polish Rebbe, and they these Litvish Yeshiva students start to come to his Tish Friday night in Vilna, and he teaches them this song of Preikia Sanach, and this becomes the theme song of the escape. And legend has it that when they're waiting on the lines by Jan Zwartendijk's Dutch consul and by Sugihara's Japanese consul, the the refugees are often humming this Preikia Sanach nigan. Now, just to make it relevant to contemporary to today. Praik Yasanach is part of Karibain, which is a song uh, with the words uh, com- uh, composed uh, or written by Rabbi Yisrael Najara, a student of the Arizal, um, who lived in Gaza, in the Jewish, the prestigious Jewish community of Gaza, 500 years ago. So the words of Praik Yasanach were actually written in Gaza. So there is a poignant uh, bookend effect to that story. But if we continue with the theme of the Soviet exit visas, um, the process worked like I described. You had to first apply, giving over all your information, giving over all your details, just, you know, uh, you know, leaving yourself to the wolves, basically, and risking uh, dep- deportation to uh, Siberia after your interview by the NKVD. But you had to wait for that interview. You were invited. You sent in your application. You paid for it. And you then were called and told to report to the NKVD offices at this and this time, and then they would interview you and ask you, and they would issue your, uh, you would get approved of your visa, and you get issued the visa. The big question for all this was, why in the world did the Soviets issue these exit visas? Why did they not send them to, to Siberia as they did to so many others? And there seems to be several different factors. Um, number one, 
Varhaftig claims in his book that it was due to his influence. And he, um, he makes a convincing argument. Um, he, he writes here, let's see if I can get the passage. Um, he says, with the establishment of the Soviet, I'm quoting directly from his book, with the establishment of the Soviet Lithuanian Republic on June 17, 1940, I decided to apply officially to the authorities in order to facilitate the transit of refugees holding N visas. We looked for personal contacts capable of advancing our objective. He writes that Dr. Elchanan Elkis helped them, who later was the head of the Judenrat in the Kovna Ghetto and was killed towards the end of the war in Dachau. Um, I'm skipping a whole, a, whole, a whole page here. And then he continues, My argument was simple. Among the thousands of fugitives from the Nazi invasion now living in the Vilna region, some held visas for Eretz Yisrael. They were unfamiliar with the Lithuanian and or Russian languages, and therefore they were unlikely to find employment in the region. Why hold on to this foreign element? We ask you only to allow us to pass through your country so that we may eventually reach Eretz Yisrael. And presumably he also meant um, the, you know, Curaçao or Japan, wherever else the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, they were, they were, they they planned on ending up. Um, my interlocutor promised to contact Moscow and asked me to call on him again to receive the reply. When I did so, I was instructed to submit a list of refugees requesting transit through the Soviet Union. His reply caused some bewilderment in the refugee community. Some argued that this was a trap. Once in possession of the list, the authorities would proceed to expel us to labor camps in Siberia. The names must be withheld from the Russians at all costs. Others, however, argued that there was no choice and that it was necessary to take the risk. Conditions did not enable us to hold a formal referendum, nor even to conduct a public opinion poll. Time was of the essence. So it was decided to take the risk even without the prior approval of those concerned. I submitted a list with my name and that of my family on top, followed by those of some 700 chalutzim and yeshiva students, names that were in my files. The list was accompanied by a short memorandum written in Russian. I awaited their reply in trepidation. Upon my shoulders rested the responsibility for the fate of hundreds of people whose names I had placed in jeopardy without their prior sanction. One morning there was a knock at my door. It was Dr. Rashkis, my erstwhile interpreter. He informed me on behalf of Dr. Elkis that a positive reply had been received from Moscow. No further details were available. I immediately rushed over to the Prime Minister's office and was informed that the Soviet authorities were prepared to grant exit permits to the refugees. I breathed a heavy sigh of relief to have rid my conscience of such an awesome burden. So there it is. I mean, that's, that's how he explains it. Um, he then goes on to quote, to cite um, the secretary of the Mir Yeshiva, Rabbi Yosef Epstein, about how the news uh, was received. Like, now that he got it, was everyone else going to run for the Soviet exit visas? So he quotes, he cites uh, uh, Rabbi Yosef Epstein, the secretary of the Mir Yeshiva. The result was even greater confusion. The visas had arrived and the most important business was now at hand, the application for exit visas from Russia. In those days, the mood in the yeshiva was of utter dejection. This time, the exit applications were to be handed over to the NKVD, and who knew what faults the NKVD screening process would find with the applicants. I might stress that those who headed the yeshiva remained wary. Reports of Mir Yeshiva students' decision to apply for exit permits made a dreadful impression on other yeshiva institutions. There was the general fear that this might be catastrophic for all yeshiva students and that the very existence of these institutions lay in the balance.
You see how scary it was. And it was not a simple thing to, uh, to go ahead and apply for these, uh, for these exit visas. Um, and then he, uh, Varavtig even brings a testimony of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz himself and his wife, Rebetzin Chana Miriam, in their oral testimony to Yad Vashem, um, which I didn't even know existed, um, but Varavtig cites it. And I'm going to read that as well. When Lithuania, so this is Reb Chaim Shmulevitz and his wife, uh, Rebetzin Chana Miriam, speaking in an oral testimony to Yad Vashem. When Lithuania was annexed to the Soviet Union, they were ordered to leave Kedan, a district capital, and were split into four groups. They took steps to obtain exit permits from the Soviet Union for the Mir Yeshiva community. Several functionaries were in contact with Dr. Zarach Varavtig, who headed the Palestine office when Vilna belonged to independent Lithuania and who dealt with exit plans even after the Soviet annexation. Because of the illegal nature of the, of the activities, only three members of the Yeshiva were involved in all of the arrangements. The others were kept in the dark on the details of the operation. Before obtaining a Soviet exit permit, all had to appear in person before the NKVD, whose screening seemed to be a mere formality. This is probably due to the high-level decision to allow these refugees to leave the Soviet Union. The applications for exit permits were approved by the NKVD offices in Vilna and Kovna. Despite the relatively liberal attitude, several dozen yeshiva students were nevertheless detained and failed to gain exit permits. These included former Polish citizens who had opted for Lithuanian citizenship. No survivors have been found among those Mir Yeshiva students who failed to leave at that time. They were no doubt murdered by the Germans and their henchmen. So that's a testimony of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. So that's one factor. That's the Varhaftig version. Another factor is um, Reb Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Herzog. On his trip that I mentioned earlier to London to intercede with the British authorities, he also met with the Soviet ambassador to England and begged him to uh, to uh, to uh, through to to uh, request from Moscow that they should be able to issue these exit visas. So it's and he, you know, he uh, complied. He he he, he you know he uh, he went to Moscow and and he didn't go to Moscow. This ambassador asked Moscow if the uh, if the Soviet authorities in Lithuania would be able to issue these visa, exit visas to the, the refugees. So it's likely that Herzog's intercession with the Soviet ambassador to London also had an effect. The third, and this you have to understand, and I think we need people to go through the Soviet archives to find the answer to this question, because the answer is probably in the Soviet archives somewhere, which you know are now available. Now we can actually look for it. And this is the most likely answer. This is what has been speculated through the years, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to support it, um, a lot of testimonies to support it, and presumably there's documentation somewhere in the Soviet archives that support this as well, that who's the, who's the refugees who want to leave? It's yeshiva students, religious Jews, or even um, not religious Jews, but Zionists and politi you know, politically active, um, all types of people or even non-Jews who are ethnic Poles, but that are, you know, people who the Soviet Union wants to get rid of. They're just going to be trouble for them. They don't want them. So they can either deport them all to Siberia, or they can just get rid of them entirely. These type of people requesting the exit visas are the most likely that the Soviet Union wants to get rid of. So it's likely that, this, that the Soviet authorities decided at some point that instead of just sending them all to Siberia, why don't we just easily get rid of them by granting them these exit visas and they're not even Soviet citizens anyway. They're refugees, they're foreign citizens. So it's not like we're allowing 
uh, our own citizens to leave the Soviet paradise. We're just allowing refugees. We're going to give them soon the status of tourists through the in Soviet in-tourist organization and even charge them accordingly. We'll get to that as well. But it's the type of people that the Soviet Union had wanted to be rid of, and that's likely the most likely reason that they were granted the Soviet exit visa. So we covered that aspect of the story, and now we're finally ready to leave. And then part seven, which we're going to start next week, is the actual exit from Lithuania, traversing the Soviet Union on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, their adventures with that, and then crossing the Sea of Japan, and then arriving in Japan, and what was it like for the refugees in Japan? That's going to be next installment of Part 7. Of course, we also have to talk about next time how this was all funded, the role of the joint, the role of the Varatsala, the whole heroic story of Ravram Kalmanovich, uh, fundraising for the Mir and for other yeshiva students, the cost of all these visas, and for the um, for for uh, for what the Soviets were charging them for transporting them on this Trans-Siberian Railroad, all that and more we'll discuss on next installment of Part Seven. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.